giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Chris Hively, entrepreneur in residence at Techstars, previously co-founder of MapQuest, and author of Build the Fort, Why Five Simple Lessons You Learned as a 10-Year-Old Can Set You Up for Startup Success. Chris, thanks for joining me. So at this point, MapQuest was a long time ago, I guess, in 1988, right? Yeah, I mean, MapQuest, as we know it, was launched in February of 1996, but the history goes back farther than the launch of the website. I think it goes back even further than 1988, right? The company that started MapQuest got its start like in 1967 or something like that? Exactly, as a map publisher Mm -hmm. back when uh, gas stations gave out free maps, which most of our listeners have no memory of (laughs) whatsoever. (laughs) So at what point did you get involved in the sort of founding of MapQuest? Well, you know, my background, um, I actually have an undergraduate and a graduate degree in geography, though I'm the worst geographer you'd ever meet. Uh, You know, I'm obviously a little bit older, but what was interesting is when I was an undergrad in kind of the late 70s, early 1980, 81, is that I loved computers, and uh, this is you know predates desktop computers, obviously laptops and you know the special phones that we have. But as a geography major, I had twelve credit hours in computer science, so I was kind of, you know, when we think about entrepreneurship, typically as jamming two things together, together that have never been jammed together before. You know, for me, it was kind of mapping and computers as a geographer. So when you kind of fast forward to what we now know as MapQuest, back then it was called Donnelly Cartographic Services. And we had, you know, 40 to 50 cartographers making maps by hand. Obviously it wasn't like pen and ink, but you know, advanced cartographic techniques of the time were definitely manual. And uh, I was brought in in 1988 to kind of automate from a production point of view and use early Macintoshes and IBM PCs and the likes to kind of create a kind of a data-driven approach to map making. Mm-hmm. I don't want to dwell on it too much, but why do you say that you are the world's worst geographer? Because <laughs> I don't know where the state capitals are or the, <laughs> the international <laughs> capitals or, or the big rivers. And as a funny aside, I remember when I went to graduate school, um, in your second semester, I think you have to take this comprehensive exam of all of geography. And there are six major categories and three of them I had never taken a class in, let alone had a graduate expertise in. And so I spent two months reading textbooks to prepare for this thing. So I, geography was kind of a passion, but the computer side was really the thing that I wanted to drive. And did you know where it was going at the time? Not a clue. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, It's like a lot of startups where you kind of have an idea that like, wow, this is pretty cool and no one's doing this. And I like to be on the front end of this and let's just keep pushing this as far as we can. But to give you a a little brief stop in history, the first thing we did outside of automating the cost, right, like bringing computers to the production side of map making was we went into auto clubs like the AAA And at the time, in 1990, there was uh, 13 or 14 other clubs. And they would deliver this thing called a triptych, which is basically a set of directions. 
Um, if you don't know what a triptych is, look it up or go ask your parents because that's the way you, <laughs> that's the way you figured out how to go from Philadelphia to Orlando, Disneyland, right? You went to AAA and they gave you this little four inch by nine inch spiral bound pages of, you know, here's I-95 from Philadelphia down to Orlando and here's all the hotels and restaurants and books and guides. And so we, we went in to automate that as like our first kind of, Hey, let's do something outside of servicing other publishers. Let's actually create a product ourselves. That's kind of fun, right? But, you know, typically technology first replicates before it innovates. Mm -hmm. So we were just replicating a paper product that we thought would be better served. You know, we could do it a little bit more interesting. It's funny that you should say that because that my first exposure to MapQuest was basically using that, but printed out from the website. <laughs> I didn't have a GPS. You know, it was really early on. I'm, uh, it was available to commercial use, but I didn't. I didn't have one. So look up the no. directions on MapQuest and print them out and put them on the seat next to you <laughs> as you went well, where you're going. Exactly. I mean, I I do talks and speeches all over the world and. Uh, Especially when when I'm in the U.S., people want to know the MapQuest story, and uh, and invariably there's a you know large number of people say, you know, I used to print those out, and I'm like, yeah, we, I did too. <laughs> right. It was all you could do back then, I guess. Exactly, and then, you know, if you think about it, we were just replicating the paper map, like mm -hmm. the atlases that we would have, but it was just it was just for us, right? Because it was our directions; it wasn't this generic, you know, piece. Of, but the first thing we had to do is we we wanted to touch paper, right? Yeah. So it wasn't clear to you when you start, as you said, you started from a, let's automate this map production process and, and computerize it because it's happening by hand now. At what point did it transition to, okay, we're, we're moving this online now? So the, the quick stops along the way are going to these auto clubs, sell them an IBM PC loaded with maps and a network of all the highways in the U.S. so they could calculate city to city routing and then produce triptychs, uh, laser printer, you know, black on white paper. And then uh, the next big step in the evolution is in 1993, desktop computers were being shipped with CD-ROMs. And this was a big step. It may not seem so big by today's standards, but what we ended up doing is basically enabling you and I at home on this CD-ROM to create the directions ourselves, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to having to go to an auto club or some other service. So now we brought it home and put the power in your own hands. It was still city to city. And then we started finding databases and working with databases that would give you address to address. That was a little harder to put on a CD-ROM, but we figured out how to do that. And by 1995, we started hearing about the internet and it was just the next kind of technology platform that we were just chasing. And we were smart enough and, you know, to be able to kind of know and talk to enough people about what kind of technologies were coming down the road. And along the way, we had made access to this huge data set. You know, we were building software to access that and make it faster and nimbler and quicker. And so the Internet was just the next thing. We put up the URL MapQuest and the rest is history. So that was about the point in time where you transitioned into investment, right? Yeah. So, you know, with that success and one of our largest shareholders, you know, reached out and said, listen, you've had great success helping to build this awesome little company. And, you know, the Internet, 95, 96, 97. I mean, that's the 
the first days and yeah. there's so much opportunity and Donnelly was a printer. And so they were, you know, their clients were everyone who had books and catalogs and, you know, all the things that now is on the web and not usually in paper form. But, you know, they were smart enough to know that the Internet was going to be transformative and said, hey, how about we give you a nice big chunk of money and go out and make some investments on our behalf. So I learned how to be a venture capitalist in the late 90s, which mm -hmm. was a really fun time to do so. So you were doing the investment and you you moved to Anderson Consulting uh, now Accenture, that used to be what it's called. You yeah. made that transition in 1998, which was, I would say, right at the height of the dot-com boom or before the crash, before the bubble. And your question should be, why would you ever <laughs> go work for Accenture <laughs> at that you point took, in time? You, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> well, uh, let me give you a couple answers, Chad. And let's start with, you know, Life, <laughs> life is, you know, a, a set of uh, experiences that cumulatively add up to something kind of special if you're lucky and smart enough. That might not have been one of the better shots, but let me tell you the thinking at the time. So um, in 98, I had run this venture fund, very successful. We had great returns. We got our hands and mix into a lot of very interesting things. And, uh, you know, very powerful, you know, had great knowledge and understanding of kind of how this takes place. And then, like a lot of corporations, typically kind of venture funds, corporate venture funds kind of go in cycles. And you know, the next thing you know, there's, you know, this is a $6 billion company and there's a new CEO. And he's like, what the heck are we doing this shit for? Aren't we printers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I said, listen, you know, either you think this is awesome or it's not. And if it's not, let me sell the portfolio and we'll all move on. So I sold all the holdings of what we had held at the time and wound that down and then look for something interesting to do. And, and then I got approached by a recruiter and I was like, you know, Anderson Consulting, Accenture, like that's a services tech business, you know, that's not me. And, but, you know, they kept calling and then I went in to talk to the guy and what I'll tell you at the time, and again, from historical, some of this sense, some of this sounds silly, but what I was starting to really understand what the internet could do was what we called personalization, where mm -hmm. we could actually, you know, kind of frame experiences for people, kind of what cookies unfortunately give us, right? It's like we could frame content and frame, you know, based on your interests. And I was also a content guy, remember? Because I'm, right. you know, I'm working in Donnelly and maps are content. And so, you know, if you think about Accenture today, I mean, it has some of the best thought leadership around management practices and white papers and case studies. And and then they have this unbelievable list of clientele, right, yeah. at the highest levels of company. And the thought was, what if I could take all this rich content and deliver it to the desktop of the C-suite of the largest companies in the world in a very targeted and personalized manner? Mm -hmm. So doesn't that sound kind of cool? Yeah, it does. I totally get it. And especially at that time, like if you really believe in that personalization and the impact that the internet was going to have on the world, it makes total sense to be at the place to look at these clients. Like these are the clients that are going to have that impact. Right. Right. Huge. And it totally makes sense. So that was the good news. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the bad news is that it was the first time in my life I realized that larger corporations and my personality don't always mix and nothing really bad, just kind of like a, wrong size suit, right? I just knew it didn't fit well. 
you know, you can have the greatest vision in the world, but you got to be able to execute it the way that you are wired and, and do best. The cool thing at Donnelly is that they were a very progressive company. They gave me a lot of autonomy to do what I wanted to do. Just Anderson slash Accenture just wasn't in that place at that time. So mm-hmm. that was ended up being short lived and it was time for me to do something else. So you moved to president of Rand McNally and there you were responsible for RandMcNally.com. Here we go. Let's put the band back together. We can do it. <laughs> it's now five to seven years later. I bet we can do it better. <laughs> yeah. Well, so at that point, it's clear businesses are, are moving online. So was that the essential pitch? Let's move this business online or was it something else? Well, it, it was probably not quite like that because, mm-hmm. you know, this is like Clayton Christensen's, you know, innovator's dilemma. You still have a you know multiple million dollar business selling paper maps, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like let's move everything online. Unfortunately, by this stage, it's 1999. You know, it's it's three years after we launched MapQuest. I mean, this that's like a lot of time, right? I mean, this right. you know, and you still have this you know the the biggest brand in the map business at the time that's still woefully behind. And so the challenge is. What can we do to kind of add this to the portfolio, knowing at some point this is probably I know this is going to be the whole the whole business. Right. Mm -hmm. But you can't sell that in 1999. And the other interesting thing that the listeners would need to know is that in the late 90s, creating kind of an Internet side of an existing traditional business the way you did it is let's set it up as a wholly owned subsidiary and and we raised money separately for rainmcnally.com and the think at the time was we need to keep this as far enough away from the business so it has its autonomy to make good decisions and to maybe even crush your own product right because mm-hmm. if that's the future but still be aligned enough that you could leverage the assets of the traditional company so you know Barnes and Noble and Borders and even like Kmart's and, you know, a lot of the traditional businesses, their first foray into the Internet was to set up a side business, even sometimes placed in different cities, you know, different staff, obviously, in the whole. So that's what we did with Rand McNally. Mm-hmm. So in 2001, obviously, this was a big impact on my life and my career was September 11th happened yeah. and the dot com bubble burst not too long before. And that was why you were president uh, yeah. at, at Rand McNally. What kind of impact did that have on you and, and your business, those two things happening? Um, huge. I mean, almost devastating, to be honest with you. Leading up to 9-11, we actually were in the process of selling the company. A private equity group had bought it from the family in 1997 the way that transaction happened put way too much pressure on the business in terms of the amount of debt and the business wasn't growing in the way that they thought it was. So, you know, that there was kind of financial constraints in what we, what we were doing and what we were trying to do. So we decided that we need, and RayMcNally.com was just starting to, you know, kick some major butt. I mean, we were really starting to grow and create a new business line and kind of, you know, really put Ray McNally at the forefront. And now the traditional business is kind of being constrained with some financial constraints and such. So we pulled RayMcNally.com back into the major company, packaged it together, hired an investment banker to go out and sell the company. What I'll tell you, Chad, when you're in that process, so we spent the summer leading up to 9-11 in that process, 
hired Deutsche Bank, who's one of the best investment bankers at the time. And what you, the process is, what you hope after they go out and kind of, you know, after you've written the book is, you know, and they've distributed to some target people, you'd like to get obviously one, two would be great, three would be perfect, three parties interested in a, you know, potentially coming in and acquire the company. And the next step of the process is they need to send, and you set a target date that they need to send letters of intent that they'd like to go forward. And this is the potential range that they might be able to purchase the company for. We had six companies soft circle. In fact, it was, we were in such a great place. Um, we were in, um, the Chicago suburb of Skokie that we had rented a place out in O'Hare and set up all our products so that we would kind of do our demos and, you know, our, mm -hmm. our walk through there instead of having to walk people through the business, which had a thousand employees, right? Mm -hmm. And so that wouldn't be so disruptive. And, uh, by the way, those letters of intent were due September 12th, 2001. Mm -hmm. And, um, 9-11 came. And if you lived through it, not just the, obviously the horror of the event itself, but businesses just froze. And every single one of those people pulled their intent or didn't send the letter and said, yeah, we're going to kind of sit on our heels and wait to see how this all shakes out. And there we were. And, uh, the issue going forward was we had financial pressures on the company. We had to decide what to do to buy ourselves some time. And, you know, I went to the CEO and I said, listen, you know, our internet stuff is cool and it's emerging, but, you know, we have a multiple hundred million dollar business of paper map, you know, creation and distribution that needs to be fed. And uh, we need to kind of wind my operation from something big and sexy and transformative to put it in maintenance mode. And on a personal level, I'm a grower, not a, not a babysitter. And so that created a time to leave. Mm -hmm. So that com bomb didn't really impact us as much than, you know, the kind of financial constraints that the company had on top of nine 11 really put us behind the eight ball. Makes me sad, Chad. I know. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's so much potential. Oh, my God. I think we were on the cusp of really kind of changing the way people do things. And I think the combination of paper and Internet and yeah. commerce, uh, we were doing some pretty cool stuff. Yeah. I think a lot of startups, a lot of businesses were impacted, like you said, not not only just by you know the horror of the event itself, but the business ramifications of it. But so from there, I don't want to go through <laughs> the next 20 years uh, of your life step by step. You're starting to date me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I, I, I'm not quite right there with you, but yeah. um, almost. So the last few things you had were in Chicago. So you're in North Carolina now. Correct. What was the thing that brought you to North Carolina originally? Sure. And I'll do a big picture run through about how I got to this place mm -hmm. so we can get to some really good stuff and not <laughs> just walk through Chris's ADD riddled uh, resume here. Post Rand McNally, I really wanted to return. I really felt kind of a calling to return to start up and small, you know, less than 10 people type of things. And so for the next 10 years, I spent, you know, some time, I, I used to say I was kind of the adult supervision that would parachute into kind of startups and help them kind of, you know, scale and grow to the next level. And, and that was a lot of fun. And I really 
started kind of getting a little, you know, my breath started getting heavier and I started getting some legs around. And by the way, when you're, when you've been an entrepreneur most of your life, you know, people, other entrepreneurs are always finding you to kind of seek advice and, and, you know, make investments and all these things. So, you know, that, that kind of starts to build on itself. And what I realized circa 2004 and five while I'm in Chicago is two things. One is at that time period, Chicago did not know how to spell the word internet. It was still an old manufacturing town. I knew all the investors. I knew most of the tech companies and they're either tech services you know, agencies, web development services, Mm -hmm. or they were kind of investing in kind of old line businesses. And the other thing I realized is it's really freaking cold there. (laughs) (laughs) After 10 years, I figured that out. And, you know, I'm a little bit of an adventurer. So is my wife and family. So we just literally looked at the map and made a spreadsheet of cool places and boiled it down to two places. We were even either headed to Boulder, Colorado or kind of Chapel Hill slash, you know, Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina. And though Boulder maybe doesn't seem as warm as North Carolina, it's sunny a lot of days out there. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were we were after. So we ended up choosing Raleigh, Durham and moved to Chapel Hill and just picked up the family and went. So that's how we got to North Carolina. Two things. One is I need to get myself in a in a place that, you know, there's a lot more kind of a technology culture. Mm-hmm. Chicago didn't have it circa 2005. And then I needed some warmth. So people who aren't familiar with the area might be surprised to hear you say, I needed to get a place with more technology culture. And so I moved to Chapel Hill, North Carolina. But there is. So what was happening at the time where that was the case and, and why? Yeah, so some of you may have heard of kind of a place called like Research Triangle Park or Mm -hmm. RTP. And here is a place that was built a little over 50 years ago to kind of to build kind of a huge kind of technology park. And they recruited companies like IBM and Lenovo, NetApp, Cisco, as well as some like pharma companies like GSK. And the whole idea was that uh, we're going to kind of put them all in kind of a big central place. And today, I mean, we count somewhere 40 to 50,000 employees among all of those companies that are conveniently located in the middle of Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, kind of the triangle of the triangle. And in the middle is the airport and also this RTP, Research Triangle Park. And for those of you that are probably older than kind of 35 or 40, you know, in our days, this was a place that had a lot of, you know, technology people. Mm-hmm. On top of that, you also have three tier one, you know, universities. Right. University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, Duke University, and North Carolina State. You know, we, we all are familiar with all, all the silly lists of communities, but, you know, highest PhD rate per capita, you know, great bandwidth. So, you know, a lot of factors that say, geez, there's a lot of cool shit happening here. So let's go hang out. The thing for me, which which put it on my radar really early on, was I was a Linux user, and that's where Red Hat was based. Yeah, headquarters. Bob Young started Red Hat in Raleigh, North Carolina. Yeah, and so I just it was always sort of a, in the literature that, that I was reading, and Red Hat went public, I think, in '99, and so it was spinning off a, a lot of you know tech people as well in the area. That's exactly. why it was on my radar. Plus, it's only a couple hours from the beach. Yeah. So that was also, you know, a contributing factor. Mm-hmm. So in your experience today, does location matter as much as it did then? Great lead in. No, it doesn't. 
And a lot of times, you know, in hindsight, we can kind of rewrite our story a little bit about mm-hmm. why things happen. Obviously, what I was interested in is finding people who spoke my language, right? And I wasn't finding that in Chicago, and I needed to go somewhere else to find it. I mean, I considered Boulder, which is a pretty small town, and, you know, and they have a great startup scene today, but 2005, I don't know how startup scene it was, but I knew there was a group of people that, you know, spoke my language. And I've never lived in the valley. I've spent you know, hundreds of nights, you know, in various parts of the Valley. And obviously when I was investing in the late nineties, I think I was in the Valley every other week, uh, from Chicago flying in and making investments there. So I've never done the Valley thing. I've never lived in New York. I've never lived in Boston, obviously spent a lot of time doing business in those cities, but I always thought I could find my tribe in other places. And that's what I found down here in Raleigh, Durham. And, and, you know, obviously, well, we'll get to it. You know, my, my mission today is to help other communities build startup ecosystems. So I have to believe that or else I'm, you know, I'm a fraud. So <laughs> it's funny that you, you would mention Boulder and think about Boulder early on because you're at Techstars now and Techstars started in Boulder, but I think it was in 2006. So yeah, you would have David been there Cohen for the start of Techstars. I shared that story with him about a year and a half ago. And, uh, and I said, that would have been really interesting. And he said, yeah, imagine if we would have met, you know, in 2005, six, like what, what would have changed? Right. Uh, maybe something, maybe nothing. Who knows? Yeah. It just shows the kind of the, the weird journey and path and the connectiveness of how things evolve. Right. So you're at Techstars now, and you mentioned that you're helping build startup ecosystems, not only in Raleigh and Durham, but elsewhere. But to you, what does being a startup mean? Do you consider what you did with Rand McNally a startup? Yeah, I mean, sometimes people use the word entrepreneur, mm-hmm. right? When you do something inside a company and, you know, kind of MapQuest and the things that Rand McNally and, you know, even kind of the thing I was doing at Accenture, to me, I felt very entrepreneurial. Obviously, you know, some of the risks aren't as much because you got this kind of umbrella safety net thing happening. Mm-hmm. But I know I built entrepreneurial muscles. I always considered these my business and I felt 100% responsible for its direction. You know, maybe instead of a board, I had, you know, a boss or a series of, you know, people that I needed to kind of share and report to. Obviously, it's not pure startup. I mean, I think even starting when I started the Startup Factory, which was a Techstars inspired accelerator, I think that's a startup. Right. Um, I raised money. I had to find staff. I had to find customers. I had to sell people stuff. <laughs> I had to pay bills. Right. So I guess that's getting at what I w- was asking about, which is, is a startup just creating a new business? <laughs> like, is any new business a startup or no? Is there is there some where you're creating a new business and it's it's not a startup? I mean, it's a great question. And I guess, I, I mean, I obviously know where you're going from and I've answered different versions of this mm-hmm. over the years. I guess I would kind of qualify this by saying, yeah, sure, maybe not. It depends the context by which the answer is important. So let me give you an example. So when I go into a community like Cleveland, Ohio, which I did last year, and, you know, here's a fairly, you know, I I don't think it's 800,000 population. I I could get the numbers wrong. You know, pretty big metro, obviously been around for a long time, has a great history of uh, tradition of kind of manufacturing businesses that, you know, most of which have faded or gone away. So when I go in a community like that, 
our ideas in terms of the definition of startup is definitely more high growth companies, scalable companies, rather than what I would call main street businesses, Mm -hmm. you know, restaurants, hairdressers, you know, those kinds of things. So when I think about startup in the context of what I'm trying to help communities build, it's not helping to build more dry cleaners. Yeah, that doesn't change an economy. Obviously, that's an important part of an economy, but it's not what we're after. What we're after is, you know, building scalable businesses. So in between that might come services business like web development shops or advertising agencies or marketing agencies. And, you know, I don't mind including those in kind of that mix because they produce jobs. And, you know, obviously there's no kind of cap on growth. So there's kind of a better but maybe still squishy answer to your question. So I'm curious about how they're different. So, you know, ThoughtBot is a web design and development agency Mm -hmm. or consulting company. And even though we have unique ideas, you know, we never really thought ourselves as a startup in a traditional sense, I think. For many of the reasons that you're sort of alluding to, you know, we were bootstrapped. We never set out to have high growth. And we never set out to change the world (laughs) or to accomplish something truly new. We believe we have a unique way of working and a better way of working, certainly. But we didn't feel like we're at the cutting edge of anything Mm -hmm. when we were starting out. It was just, this is what we're doing because we believe it's the next step for us. And so I wonder if the difference between what we think of as startups today and just normal businesses is that idea of I'm changing the world, I'm doing something special, I am creating something that is going to be large. It's that sort of dynamic or that feeling that separates the idea of what we think of as startups and what we talk about as startups and startup ecosystems when cities think about it and just businesses and the business ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Again, I think within context, I mean, sometimes I use these words interchangeably. So, mm-hmm. and it sometimes depends where I'm at. So, when I'm speaking or talking to people outside the US, a lot of times I'll kind of swap startup for innovation, mm-hmm. like innovation ecosystems, um, because innovation takes place, you know, in corporations. Innovation is something that's a little bit broader. And a lot of times outside of the US, The people that are interested in kind of diversifying their economy and kind of wanting to embrace entrepreneurs, they just like the word innovation better than than startup because they feel just to the point of this conversation, like what is a startup and where do you put a box around it? Where does it stop and start? So, all right, let's let's take that off the table. Mm -hmm. Let's just talk about kind of how we address, you know, the kind of people that we want in our community and the resources they need to kind of drive progress, right? And to be relevant. You know, at the end of the day, every person and community just wants to be relevant, right? We all want to be working on things that wake us up in the morning and make us excited. And that we turn around and we see lots of other people who feel the same way. So like I go into Fort Wayne, Indiana last year. Here's a community that's lost population every year for the last 25 years, right? I mean, this is not a good sign, mm-hmm. right? And there's like, well, how do we keep people? Well, you haven't given them a reason to stay, right? So let's start pulling people together. And, 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 and that doesn't, we don't have to confine that to be, hey, can we build the next Facebook in Fort Wayne? To me, that's the wrong yeah. goal to have. The right goal is, 
how do we get like-minded people and create some passion and some connectiveness around them so they can accomplish the things that are kind of more progressive? And in a community like that, I'd rather see them build five $20 million companies with 25 to 50 employees in each one of those mm -hmm. than figure out how to take this kind of non-controllable, you know, unicorny, like, oh my God, if we could just figure out how to get Google here, everything would take place, you know, everything would yeah. swimmingly work well. So I know we're not necessarily on a, maybe I'm off a little bit on a tangent, but I, you know, I think media obviously likes to create really simple, unbelievable stories. Right. And uh, one of the things I go into communities and I say, listen, this is a 10 to 20 year journey that starts with thousands of little decisions that all kind of come together. And you may not notice the impact in hours or days or even weeks, but I promise you, you'll see it an impact in months and years. And if you're willing to go on that journey and wake up every day saying, we're going to kind of create an innovation community here then you'll diversify your economy and good things will happen. Mm -hmm. And people will start to stay because they'll see that their tribe is here having success. How much impact can a city or, or a state actually have on fostering a startup ecosystem? The answer is somewhere between none to some. <laughs> okay, What's not there is everything because great communities are not built from the top down. Right, Cities, states, Organizations like chambers or economic development are well-meaning and have a role to play, but their muscles and their tools, Chad, you know, the tools you use to build a business, right? Command and control, right? Structure, planning, budgets. That doesn't sound very startup-y, does it? <laughs> right, right, right. As an entrepreneur, when I hear those words, I want to run the other direction, right? right? Slamming the door behind me. So great communities are built from the ground up. And they're built by having lots of diverse people come together to kind of create the right attitudes and culture by which great shit can happen. So there's roles to play for those people that are in government or academia or in large corporations. Those are critical roles, especially kind of after communities kind of starts to get off the ground. They very much can enhance and augment what's happening. But the leadership and the focus has to be around serving entrepreneurs. And a lot of times bureaucrats forget that and they're thinking about serving themselves or their organization, right? Mm -hmm. So when people say, you know, I'm from the chamber and I ran this entrepreneurial event and no entrepreneur showed up. I'm like, well, duh. Like, why would they show up? Are they showing up for you? No, right? You missed the reason that you exist. My partner, Brad Feld, who wrote kind of one of the seminal books on this called Startup Communities, you know, great venture capitalist for Foundry Group, big blogger and author, he refers to a community as having leaders and feeders. And maybe it's a little bit of an oversimplification, but we do that because we can kind of consume this easily, right? Leaders have to be entrepreneurs and everyone else is a feeder. And a feeder's job is to serve the entrepreneur. Bureaucrat, academic, investor, we're there to serve entrepreneurs. No entrepreneurs, no entrepreneurial community. Boom. So if a community wants to foster an entrepreneurial startup ecosystem, Doing that, it almost sounds like you're saying it's got to not be about you <laughs> and you, you got to almost get out of the way while striking a balance between being supportive and getting out of the way. Yeah, you're very, you're very much onto this. So first of all, the first thing anybody can do who's interested in helping to grow their community is they can reach out to me because this is my mission today. 
you know, I mean, I was outside of Pittsburgh yesterday talking to 250 people in kind of the rural parts of Pennsylvania, wanting to think about how they could build a community in Johnstown, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, you guys can do this. And half the audience had ties on. And I said, great. I know this is your culture, but there's a different startup culture. The physics are different here. And the best thing I can do is share with you how these physics are different. And then have you kind of shift your mindset a little bit about how you can enable and serve entrepreneurs. And I think if you walk in with that kind of enable and serve, Mm -hmm. then I I say the easiest thing to do is when you are a person sitting there with a dilemma or, or an action sitting in front of you, and you don't know what to do in terms of your personal action, just ask yourself this question. Will this help an entrepreneur be more successful? Because the more successful entrepreneurs in the community, right? Right. This is like a positive contagion, right? It just spreads all over, right? Mm -hmm. So ultimately, entrepreneurial success is the best way to build a community. So how can I help serve that? And if you go in with that mindset, then you'll be better off. There are lots of things you could do standing side by side with other entrepreneurs and investors and people community to do that, whether it's putting together you know, simple as a little coffee meeting in the morning, or whether it's putting together a big event or convincing, you know, someone to run a, you know, new code academy to teach newcomers how to write code, or there's a long list, a litany of activities you can do. But if you don't, if you don't walk in with the right kind of cultural mindset, then you're going to hit a dead end. So that's what basically um, this business inside Techstars is today that we're, we're building is how do we go in and help either create awareness and or help shift people's mindset around building a great foundational aspect to a startup community. And then patience, you know, 10, 20 years and, you know, inch by inch, you'll get there. So you write a lot. People can read your writing. You post some on LinkedIn, I think, and and on your website. But you recently wrote a book. Yeah. What made you write the book as opposed to just continuing to write online? Well, certainly, you know, vanity says. <laughs> I love the answer. Vanity, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool being an author. You know, you know, I had my bucket list of things I want to accomplish before I die. Learn to play the piano, do five minutes of open mic stand up and write a book. Right. There you go. My dad was an avid reader, wrote some short stories, which is pretty cool. By the way, I also failed freshman English in college. Like, not a D, like a full F. You know, a hundred on all the grammar tests. And then, you know, I guess my writing was pretty abysmal. So maybe there's a little bit of something to prove. Those are kind of the fun, cute answers. I guess the real answer is I wanted to write a book that helped people like me who are kind of just really good, simple grinders figure out, you know, go to any event that I'm speaking at. I said, raise your hand if there's an idea that you'd like to go do. And of course, like 98% of the people raise their hand. But we all know like three to four, five percent maybe ever act on that. So this book is about helping maybe take a few of you out there who are thinking about it, but have fear or concern about the unknown, about kind of how do you go about it, is to give them a really simple way of getting building some confidence. And you know, I say like, I want to help you with the first leap and the first two steps after. Mm-hmm. So the, you use the metaphor of a fort in the book. Yeah. Was that something that you had carried with you for a while before putting it into the book? So there's a gentleman by the name of Marshall Clark who kind of wrote all the original software for MapQuest. 
Marshall's a good friend. Obviously, I've known him for 25 plus years. And he and I have worked together three times. And uh, Marshall and I have kind of a language between ourselves in a way that would seem weird as an outsider. It's just the way we think and talk about things. And we, we think in metaphors all the time. And by the way, I did build a ton of forts as a kid. But somewhere mm-hmm. along the line, early in our, in our journey, he and I struck upon the concept of building a fort as when we started kind of a new idea, uh, like a new startup. And he said, all right, build the fort. And one of the first questions he would ask me is, where are we going to steal the wood? Now, remember, this is a metaphor. <laughs> Most of our ideas don't need wood. We need code or data or customers or right stuff like that. And so... But the metaphor was, how do we just simplify this down to kind of the basics of, you know, all the words around MVP and lean that we Mm -hmm. all know today? You know, we were kind of doing our version of that, you know, for the last 15, 20 years. So the ideas in the um, first of all, I I really appreciate that the book's not huge. So if people, (laughs) you know, so many business books you read are like they have a good idea and then they just say that idea over and over again in 10 different ways over the yeah, course I mean, of like, the book. You could have done this in 50 pages, <laughs> but you know, no one writes a 50 page book. So you gave me 14 versions of it in 150, right? <laughs> right. Right. So I, I really appreciate that. And I would encourage people to uh, pick up the book and read it. if you had, And because I'm encouraging that, we don't need to go through the book, all the details of the book, but right. you talk about those steps of building your business and through the metaphor of the fort, what is, you know, maybe not the most important, but your favorite one? Let me give you a, qualify this by a little bit. One of the questions I frequently get is, you know, do you have any regrets or if you could change anything? Mm-hmm. I can tell you there's one regret. And I think anybody who's thinking of a startup or has an idea in their head, I want them to really listen to this piece. And then we'll get to the kind of the follow on to cool. this. Every business I've run, I wish I would have spent more times with customer and less time building the product. Now, by the way, building the product is the fun part. Envisioning what that thing is, thinking of all the mechanics, whether it's software or, or a you know piece of hardware, or whether it's a toilet paper dispenser, like that's the idea, right? And so we get around, most of us get jazzed about the product, but it turns out that the world is littered with really good products with no customers, right? And so I think the whole idea of Eric Reese's Lean Startup that really kind of resonated with me is the idea of, you know, what Steve Blank calls customer development. And one part of customer development is customer discovery. And so to answer the question about build the fort, I think my favorite thing that I now do really well and that I encourage others to do, and in fact, I make it a criteria for actually follow-up advice from me is... Come back to me when you've gone out and talked to at least 50 people about this idea. Mm-hmm. And if half of them could be potential customers, that's even better. You know, and not just your family, right? Because there's an amazing thing that happens. First of all, if you can't go out and talk to other people about your idea, there's already a pretty good chance you're never going to do something, right? Yeah. Like yeah. an idea locked in your head is pretty much useless, right? So you've got to get it out of your head. And so step one in building the fort, and and when I use the analogy, I tell the story of growing up, my buddy Jimmy Doyle, and it starts with, you know, hey, Chrissy, do you want to build a fort? And if you think about when you're 10 or 12, you don't worry about 
the answer, right? You just throw it out there, like no fear, right? No inhibitions. You don't start figuring out all the reasons why it's not going to work before you say it, right? You just go, hey, want to build a fort. So with that in mind, I think the best part of build a fort and the best thing, advice I can give to anybody is just go out and start sharing your idea with people. You'd be amazed at what happens through this process, especially when you get kind of more than 15 people is you're going to start getting some really interesting questions and feedback that will only help you hone your idea better as well as make your pitch even better because you'll figure out words that aren't working or aren't resonating. And so that's my favorite part of anything is going out and just sharing your idea freely with a decent number of people. That's great. And you probably don't realize how the last three or four interviews that we've done have all said a version of that, essentially. <laughs> so you're doing a great job of reinforcing the message overall. Put it this way. The alternative is you're going to spend an enormous amount of time and maybe even some amount of money to only find out that everyone hates your idea. Yeah. So if you have all the time and money in the world, go ahead and build your perfect dream product. But if you're not one of those people and you're a mere mortal like Chad and I, then I highly recommend taking your idea, not even a prototype yet, and just go and start talking to a bunch of people. They want to listen. Believe me, they'll love listening to this. And everyone's willing to give their advice. Yeah. Listen one common objection people have is like they're afraid of um, people stealing the idea or, or that kind of thing. How, how do you counter that notion? Blah. <laughs> <laughs> Get over it. <laughs> Get over it. First of all, it's not that great of an idea. We all know, like, it's. they always say it's not the idea, it's the execution of the idea. Yeah. The journey to starting something and getting off the ground and actually creating a successful business is freaking hard. Yeah. And I got to tell you, if you don't just love this idea because you've been kind of consumed by it by days, weeks, months, years, when you take someone else's idea, the first time you hit your head in the wall, you're like... Pfft, I ain't doing this again, right? right? The only people who make it all the way through are the people who it's their idea. So smart people don't take other people's ideas because they're not passionate about it. And bad people might take your idea, but guess what? They're bad people and they're going to give up on it too soon. So don't worry about someone stealing your idea. It's never going to happen. That's great, Chris. I really appreciate your time and insight. If people want to follow along with you, read more of your writing, where's the best place to do that? Hively.com, H-E-I-V as in Victor, L-Y.com. And there's a ton of stuff on there. Some of it's good, some of it's crap. But uh, <laughs> it's short reads, just like the book. Um, obviously, the book. Yeah, those are the two best places to find me. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it again. And thanks for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Before I go, I wanted to tell you that we've got a number of leadership and individual contributor positions open at ThoughtBot right now in both design and development, as well as the unique opportunity to work directly with me as managing director of our New York City studio. Managing directors lead the sales and business operations of their studio. They foster relationships with partners, and they grow ThoughtBot's reputation as a leader in your city. For more information and to apply, visit ThoughtBot.com jobs, or you can email me directly at chat at thoughtbot.com. That sounds interesting to you. I really hope you do. You can subscribe to the show and find show notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at host at giantrobots.fm and you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thank you.
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.